Hi, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And today we are going to be talking about uh, babies and uh, whether the world needs more of them. Seems like something that uh, you think would be kind of uncontroversial. Everybody likes babies. Uh, I did, however, just a couple days ago, I was driving uh, near my neighborhood and someone had put up some signs along the road that said, birth is the catalyst for all suffering and death. Vasectomies are man's best friend in the cycle of trauma and abuse. Stop having children. So, you know, it, clearly there are some people uh, out there who think that uh, there are, uh, you know, there's too many people or, or having kids is a bad thing. Our guests today take kind of like the opposite position on that. We have uh, with us Malcolm and Simone Collins. Uh, we are who, so excited to be here. Yes, Hi. yes. You you are uh, of the Collins Institute, pronatalism.org. You're on the Pronatalist.org, yeah. Yeah, pronatalist.org, excuse me. Uh, and then you've, you've written some books and do some other things uh, as well, but we want to talk about that. So for, first off, welcome... Welcome to uh, the Urbane Cowboys. We are so excited to be here. Um, I would love to just start with some statistics, because I think a lot of people hear about birth rates falling, and there's generally a misunderstanding of how severe the situation is right now. Yeah, I would love to start with some statistics, but before I do that, I do think it would be nice to just get a little, if you could say a little bit about your background, uh, both of you, who you are, and like where you where where you come from, that sort of thing? Uh, sure, yeah. Started my career as a neuroscientist, did some early work on brain-computer interface stuff, uh, then uh, and, and human evolution stuff. I had an exhibit on display at the Smithsonian. From there, I went to work in venture capital. I was the director of strategy at a firm in Korea. Um, and then after that, um, my wife and I, uh, she had been working in marketing before. Uh, she was the director of marketing at the uh, 10th most traffic website in the U.S. at the time. So we got together. We raised our own fund after she got her uh, graduate degree in Cambridge in technology policy. And uh, we used that fund to acquire a number of travel companies, uh, which is our main day job. Uh, and on the side, we write books. We've written three so far, and we have two more coming out that I'm really excited about. And the books basically cover topics in a very academic-like format, or I would imagine the format that academia aspires to cover topics in, but really can't anymore due to political pressures and misincentives. So they go into topics like sexuality, relationships, uh, and the next two are on governance and religion. Okay, that's called the pragmatist guide, guide. to whatever, you know. Yeah, the Pragmatist Guide to Relationships, the Pragmatist Guide to Sexuality, the Pragmatist Guide to Life, the Pragmatist Guide to Religion, that sort of stuff. Okay. Well, that's it. those are all very important uh, topics. Uh, Simone, is there anything you would like to add on that? Uh, uh, I would just say it was the 40th highest traffic site. For, oh, uh, 40th. Correction. My bad. We got to stay humble, my friend. But no, yeah, we're just, we're, aside from that, just very happy-go-lucky parents of currently three kids, but we aspire to have as many as we possibly can. And we also hope that a lot of other people can do the same. Um, it's kind of sobering that that view that you saw expressed in that that sign on the side of the road is is surprisingly common and surprisingly common among very pro-social people whose values and culture and views we consider to be important, but they're kind of ending it and it worries us. 
now that we've had the chit chat, we can get into the statistics. <laughs> uh, you know, what is the situation? I do think, you know, you're, you're right. A lot of people, to the extent they think about, uh, you know, global population or, or, or whatnot, they think of, you know, overpopulation, too many people, that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, well, I mean, also to the sign to what someone was saying, I mean, it's really hilarious when you think through the logic of what they're saying, they're saying we want everybody who wouldn't abuse their kids to stop having kids only only the families with a cycle of abuse. You guys keep going, but all the rest right. of you stop. It's like, what world does that bring us into? <laughs> <laughs> um, but to get into the statistics, because I think a lot of people are like, yeah, birth rates are dropping, but it's not really that bad. We can solve the problem with immigration. It's just a developed countries phenomenon. No, 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 no. That was true 10 years ago. We're well past that. As of this last year, all of South America, Central America, and the Caribbean collectively fell below repopulation rate. It looks like India is going to fall below repopulation rate next year. They're only at 2.2 now, and once they hit 2.1, they're below. China, um, by one measure, is expected to be at half their current population within 45 years. Um, and their fertility rate is dropping so fast that one study I saw showed the fertility rate dropping between last year and this year over 13%. And, and we can provide you with a document you can share that has links to all the sources on this stuff that I'm mentioning. Right now, over half the world's population lives in a country with a below replacement fertility rate. If you look at places where I worked, like where I really got interested in pernatalism is when I was doing BC in Korea. And right now, so within a year, they're projected to have a, a fertility rate of 0.7. That means for every 100 Koreans, there will be 4.3 great-grandchildren. Um, their current fertility rate is around 8, I think 0.8. So that would mean that for every 100 Koreans, there will be, uh, I think it's 6.6 great-grandchildren. Uh, you are talking about like complete collapses of these social orders. And when I was working in Korea and doing VC in Korea, I really got interested in this because what I learned is how far a society can go down sort of a fertility collapse before anyone will really say anything at a public level. I would, uh, because we had to project how companies were going to do, you know, 50 years out, right? You know, it's like, okay, where is this market going to be in 50 years? And I remember I, I, I went to some of the other partners at the firms and I talked to them afterwards and I go, like, we all know that like Korea doesn't exist in 50 years, not as like a meaningful economy because of birth rates. And they're like, yeah, everybody knows that, but we're just all like pretending that everything's fine <laughs> because everyone else is pretending. So that means economically, you know, these startups will continue to get funding as if an economy was still going to exist in, in, in 50 years. Um, and we can look at other places. So there's, I think there's two real things to note here, right? One is, is what we see in Korea because they're at a more advanced stage of collapse than we are in the U S is that the number doesn't, like slow down. It's not like you reach some lower bound of fertility collapse and then everybody just immediately wakes up and people start having kids again. And it, it, what we actually see is as the fertility collapse continues, it begins to sort of infect cultures that were previously resistant to it. So if you're looking at the U.S., one of the most chilling statistics I've seen is that it looks like even Mormons might already be below replacement rate or will be within five years. Um, and what this means is the cultures we used to think of as, is, 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 is resistant to this collapse just don't seem to have a resistant. And what we've seen from Korea is there doesn't seem to be a point at which things reverse. Uh, now I could go deeper in a lot of different areas there, but I just want to lay that out to start. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, 
I know Utah as a whole has been, uh, I think, at like around two or something. And of course, not everyone in Utah is a member of the LDS Church or whatever. But it is a little striking. I I think uh, I'd like to get into what are the consequences of this. Yeah, uh, first, yeah, maybe we could just talk about okay, well, why why is this happening? I mean, I think it used to be, you know, people might think, well, people have fewer kids when societies get rich. If you think about it, that's straightforwardly, it doesn't totally make sense because you think if, well, if you have more money, uh, why would that mean you want to have fewer kids? And then it also seems yeah. like this is just so a rich can, country phenomenon anymore. So what what is driving it, Yeah, it's not just a rich country thing anymore. So sort of an everywhere thing except countries that don't have female education we can get into like what's causing it in a second but uh first i'm going to talk about some of the consequences of this which was the first question you asked because i think that a lot of people they hear population is going down that's great that means i can have a bigger house real estate won't cost as much you know um like there's this perception that like once the population goes down things will generally get better in a society and yet we have good models because we've seen in developed countries what begins to happen when you have a quick population collapse. And Detroit's a really good example of this. I can, uh, I can take a crack at why people are not having kids uh, so, uh, above replacement rate. But Malcolm, why don't you restart on why? Um, so where was I? Oh, yes, I was talking about uh, economic collapse. So for the past 250 years or so, uh, we've been in a situation. OK, uh, for the past, we've been in a situation where, like, on aggregate, the economy has gone up. Um, and you could dumbly invest money in the stock market and that money would increase over time. And the core reason that was happening was that the number of economic units, human beings, was increasing exponentially and the productivity per economic unit was increasing linearly. But the technology, while the technology has been increasing, like in terms of like chip speed and stuff like that exponentially, um, the actual uh, economic impact it has on the productivity per unit has been linear for about the past hundred years. We're about to enter a state where the population is going to begin crashing exponentially. Um, the reason why the population will crash exponentially is because populations like intrinsically always either grow or shrink by a multiple, by the multiple of verses. So it will intrinsically crash exponentially. So we're going to deal with a population that's crashing exponentially, but technology that's still only increasing the productivity per unit linearly, which means that we'll have markets all over the world that on aggregate are declining. And this is a huge problem when you look at how much we've leveraged our society. We have leveraged the land, we have leveraged our city governments, we have leveraged our state governments, and we have leveraged our, our national governments. And leverage is great. It allows you to get exponential benefits when you're in a growing system. But if the system ever begins to shrink and you have the amount of leverage on the system that everywhere in the world has right now, uh, you're going to start seeing collapses very similar to what we saw in Detroit. Um, and uh, I, I can go into the data on that collapse, but that's really where we're heading economically speaking. But this isn't just an economic problem, and this is something that Simone really touched on. It's also a problem in terms of the types of people who are not having kids anymore. If you look at studies on the heritability of political ideologies very robustly, it's shown that it's about 70 to 60 percent heritable, 30 to 40 percent environmental. What this means is that if you start deleting people 
of specific political or sociological perspectives from the gene pool really aggressively, you're going to see within democracies a massive shift in the way things operate. Um, and that really worries us because we've done studies on who seems to be resistant to this birth rate collapse. And at first we weren't really worried. We thought it was like religious people and it's not. It, it appears that you could be religiously fervent, you know, ultra progressivist or religiously fervent religious person. Uh, the people who are uh, resistant to this are the people who look down on outsiders and just don't listen to new ideas. And so that's the direction we're going to go with the species, which is super not good. Now, someone, you're going to say uh, why this is happening. Yeah, well, and I'll also just annotate Malcolm's comment there a little bit. We, we took a data set um, that one of our friends had created um, with a really pretty big poll using a platform called Positly. Um, and then we hired someone at Mayo Clinic because we didn't have time to go through this, the, the data ourselves, who had published a bunch of you know good studies with other people um, that enabled us to look at characteristics of people who had multiple kids vis-a-vis -vis the, the normal population. That's where we learned that, oh no, it's not just religiosity. It's literally being like closed to outside ideas being, I mean, essentially kind of more racist. Like it wasn't good. It didn't look good. And then, you know, there's only speculation as to why people, when they reach higher levels of wealth and female educational attainment, um, end up having fewer kids. It is disturbing that right now the big stats that do track with having a lot of kids are poverty and low female educational attainment, because that kind of doesn't bode well for the future of feminism. But it seems that and when we discuss this with friends and philosophers and researchers who look a lot at this information, the, the conclusion that people arrive at a lot is that there just isn't some any more exogenous reason to want to have kids. It used to be that kids provided either an insurance kind of platform where, you know, they would take care of you in old age. What a lot of people don't think about is what it takes to keep a population stable. All right. Um, if you have a population, which most like cosmopolitan populations are like these days, where about a third of the people aren't having kids. So like, look at your friend group. And about a third of your friend group isn't having kids. And about a third of your friend group is having two kids. That means the final third of your friend group for the sociological profile that like makes that sort of person to stay stable has to have over four kids. Very few people in our society are having over four kids. And yet you need somebody to have over four kids within any population for every individual that chooses to have no kids. That is, I think, the core of why things are collapsing. Because once you get to the why would you, as a human being, have over four kids, you're not doing it to make your life better, generally speaking, not anymore. The reason why you would do that within like a modern wage labor economy is because you have some sort of externality motivating you. And usually those externalities are more traditional cultures, as, as, as we've been saying. And the thing that seems to protect people within those more traditional cultures, i.e. religions, is an unwillingness to listen to outsiders, not a fervency of beliefs. And that was our big, scary thing we saw in the statistics. But I mean, another factor at play here is that what those cultures also have is they value having kids. And our current mm -hmm. modern culture doesn't elevate people for parenthood. So basically, you don't get social capital for having kids. You don't get yeah. money for having kids. You don't get insurance for having kids. Your, your kids aren't going to support you in old age or let you live in their home as, at, at high rates as they did in the past. So what are people getting? Nothing. And 
yes, kids are a joy. Kids are amazing. But most people see after two kids or three kids, especially, oh, this is getting hard. You know, we can't fit them all in one car. Like you really have to to invest and double down on a lifestyle in which you have a lot of kids these mm-hmm. days based on all the laws, rules, regulations, but also, you know, obligations that parents have to their children. It's a lot. Um, and so and, if people don't have a reason to do that, they're not going to do it. It's, it's too expensive. It's too much work. Yeah. And, and, and I think that this comes down to why are some countries still having a lot of kids? Because there are still a few countries. We're expected by the end of the century, there will be three countries that are still above repopulation rate. I think that's who data, or it might be UN data. Anyway, and those countries are, are mostly in Africa. Um, and so the question is, is what's going on there? Well, they're undergoing the transition that every other country in the world has gone through, where you start with a really high birth rate, then you begin to industrialize, then your birth rate goes down. The only way, like, if we wanted to use those cultures as a source of human beings, and this is really sick, because I often hear people say this, what they say is, oh, I don't care that, like, the U.S. is going to be a bunch of old, unable-to-work white people. We'll just import black people to support them. That's basically what they're suggesting from countries where we intentionally keep the lifestyle shit so that they have lots of kids. Like, that is not a solution. And you would need to keep importing them because right now, first-generation immigrants only have 1.7 kids. They're below repopulation rate, and it's dropping. So it's, well, it's put more diplomatically, even, you know, like a lot of people are just like, don't worry, we'll rely on immigration. It's great. That also, you know, even in the best scenario, you're encouraging a brain drain from countries that are rapidly developing that could really use that talent there. You know, like it's it's not really fair, no matter how we can work it in our minds, at least. It seems just very wrong. One one thing that I have found striking is if you look at you know, I saw a graph recently that had uh, fertility by household income in the United States, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I don't know if you've seen this graph. Yeah, yeah but, I'm familiar. So it's a bit of a U-shaped graph. Yeah, it creates, it's a U. Yeah, it creates it's, it's, a perception oh, that you could solve yeah. the problem by increasing quality of life. Like some people are like, hey, it's not just that, you know, if, if, if I – if housing is slightly cheaper, if childcare is slightly cheaper, like they go over all the things. They're like, look, it's just a quality of life thing. And they use this graph to argue that, but they use this graph without looking at the axes. Cause it turns out you only get above repopulation rate again when household income is half a million to a million per year. That is not a realistic way to solve this problem at the societal level. Yeah, well, yeah, well, uh, I mean, uh, if inflation keeps up, maybe we could all uh, be making <laughs> a half a million a year. I was just thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, I mean, uh, then I guess uh, this is a question of what can be done. Well, let me ask you this. I don't know if you have thoughts on this because uh, so this is obviously this is a subject that I uh, talk a lot about mm-hmm. uh, myself. I have. Uh, you know, I, I noticed the similar sort of uh, phenomenon where uh, particularly, I think, if, if people are wealthier or more educated or whatever, they have fewer kids, delay in marriage, childbirth, all that sort of stuff. And it does seem to be a fairly universal phenomenon with one exception. There is the one is... I, I know is the exception here. Well, what's the one you're going to say? Uh, I was going to say Israel, 
Yeah, uh, Jews. We, it's not just Israel. It's Jews more broadly. Okay, well, go 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 into that because uh, that's yeah interesting. Because my understanding is that in the United States, mm-hmm. Jews did not have a very high fertility rate. But remember how I said the people? Well, not all Jews. You include Reform Jews, but I mean, you look at the Orthodox Jews within the U.S. and um, yeah. right. Orthodox secular Jews, which is like a group I I consider. I can talk more about that. But but as I was saying, the people who have the protected birth rates are the people who stay in these ancestral cultures. And the interesting thing about Jewish culture is it secularizes really, really well. Jewish culture can exist within a secular world without losing its traditions and practices and causing the younger generation to reflectively and angrily turn against it at the same rate as other older cultures. Um, and that's the core reason. Now, I'm going to step back here and talk about like the core thesis of one of our next books, which is that if you look at humanity, we essentially were our biological hardware, which had evolutionary pressures applied to it. But on top of that biological hardware and sort of biological firmware, there was a software, which were these memetic packages. And today, when we talk about memes, we typically talk about a meme in the way that marketers mean it, right? Like a meme infects one person, then uses the person it infects to convert other people to that meme, and they affect other people. But historically speaking, most memetic packages didn't really spread through conversion. They spread through birth rate. They spread through optimal the genetic fitness of the individual. And these memetic packages are what we today think of as cultures and religions. And these packages, this software that evolved to sort of sit on top of humanity and keep our birth rates above repopulation rate to some extent, has been stripped off in the last couple generations. And with many positive side effects of stripping it off. But you can't just like rip this entire part of how our brain was meant to function out and expect there to be no consequences to that. And one of the things we're really working on with our next book, and I think one of the things that we really need to do as a society is build and transition other ancestral cultures to robust uh, intergenerational secular models, uh, similar to uh, what, what what the Jewish culture has done. Mm. Malcolm calls them durable cultures in in another word. Um, So the the general idea being that if there isn't that exogenous cultural factor encouraging people to have kids now and to pass their cultures on, right, to pass on Mm pro-social values, to to pass on women's rights, um, environmentalism, all sorts of interesting and nice things, you know, considering outside ideas, you have to create a culture and you have to create a culture that survives. And that's, that's what one, what our next book is really focused on, but it's also what we are doing with our family. We create our own family identity, our own unique naming scheme, our own holidays. So our kids grow up feeling a unique cultural identity, which is partially focused on high birth rate. And hopefully uh, we can persuade other families to sort of join a network that's trying this larger experiment. He means to say you get to actually shape the future. Basically, those who show yes. up are the ones who get to determine how the future of humanity evolves and changes. Um, this isn't about being better, more wealthy, more educated, more anything. It's it's just about showing up in the form of having kids who have grandkids and so on. Uh, yeah, that's certainly the way it's been in the past. I am interested. He mentioned uh, you create your own holidays. I don't know if you want to yeah. share 
So the way that durable cultures uh, are, that, that have passed down high birth rates have survived in many ways is people don't realize all the benefits that they're imparting. So one thing that holidays that we are intentionally crafting do that many more traditional cultures also do is teach people to strengthen their inhibitory pathways, which is to say, you know, basically encourage hardship, encourage foregoing things, encourage breaking addictions in a way that helps people literally strengthen those neural pathways. Um, so consider Lent, consider Ramadan, consider lots of different, oh, like all the different fasting Sundays with the, the LDS church. All of these really seem arbitrary, like, oh, it kind of seems like it would suck to give those things up. Uh, you know, maybe I'm like vaguely Christian, but I'm not going to practice that particular element of the religion. They actually matter. They help people deal with not just, um, you know, saying no to things, maybe passing up, you know, some sort of addictive halfway or food, but also maybe have more control over intrusive thoughts, be able to have ultimately better mental health. So our holidays do things like that. Um, Malcolm, do you want to describe one of them? Well, I actually, um, I wanted to go into what I was talking about before, and then we can talk about the holidays, which is this great moment in history we're at right now. If you create one of these intergenerationally durable cultures, because like, if you look just at our family, um, you know, suppose we had eight kids and they had eight kids and you do that for just 11 generations. That's more descendants than there are humans on Earth today. And you look at all of the cultures that are rapidly collapsing, and the few that are able to maintain uh, above repopulation rate birth rates, the few that are able to do that are mostly technophobic. They're not really participating in the internet. They're not really participating in technology. If you choose to be one of the few families that is able to make the future of the human race, your personal responsibility, and is able to produce one of these technophilic high birth rate cultures, you are sort of setting the tone for the future of our species in a way that hasn't been unlockable to humans in, in maybe ever, like your average human. But this is something that anyone can participate in today, and that's so cool. And in regards to our holidays, one of the ones that I really love is Future Day. And what we do in Future Day, we do it over New Year's, is kids have, by the future police, um, uh, one of their vices uh, taken away, uh, usually something that's, that's Skinner boxy. Um, and a little note is left for them. And they then have to, and on the notes, it's like a cryptic code to, to a location. They then have to create a contract for the future police that they draft up about how they're going to make the future a better place. So give us an opportunity to talk with them about the future, how they can make it better, and something concrete this next year they could focus on to make the world a better place and set a concrete goal for themselves. They then hide this contract at the location and the little card that was left when their device was taken by the future police. And they get a small present the next day. However, they get a much larger present based on the ambition of the goal they set for themselves when this goal is achieved. And what this does is it sort of frames for our kids a, a few things that are important to our culture. One is this idea of trying to make humanity a better place in the distant future and this sort of long-term is thinking. But then also this idea that to try to create a, a secular 
uh, sort of deity-like thing for them. This idea that in the future, a million years from now, 10 million years from now, you know, their descendants could be closer to gods than the way they would conceive of humans, which allows them to borrow many of the practices from our sort of ancestral uh, theological background. You have had the distinction of being profiled not once but twice by Bloomberg, most recently about the natalist thing. But you previously, I believe, were profiled um, because I and you know, perhaps related to this is that you were advocates of something called uh, polygenic embryo selection. Uh, which is, uh, I think, uh, it's not very well known, uh, maybe a little controversial, yeah. definitely a little controversial, uh, a lot of issues uh, with it. Maybe you you want to talk a little bit about that or maybe Simone? Yeah, uh, yeah. We, we love this subject. Yeah, so Bloomberg talked uh, with us in like the spring of this year about our being among the first couples to leverage this very, very new uh, commercially available technology that basically enables people who do IVF, who create embryos through IVF, to have those ivory, um, those embryos biopsied in a way that gives more data than couples got before. In the past, if you created an embryo through IVF, you could have it biopsied and know the gender. You could know if the uh, zygote was eukaryotic or not, you know, basically if it was more likely to be carried to term. Now, instead, you can work with a company like Genomic Prediction, which is the company that we worked with, to get a whole bunch of additional traits and basically risk scores um, that will allow you to make a more informed choice about which of your embryos you ultimately choose to implant. So, uh, yes, there it's, it's called like polygenic risk score selection. Genomic Prediction calls it PGTP. Um, instead of PGTA, which is the typical test that has been done on embryos. And polygenic risk scores are just risk scores, and they are polygenic. So, you know, earlier in the past, people used to talk about like, oh, is there like an intelligence gene? Is there like a cancer gene? Um, Polygenic risk scores are a lot more nuanced than that. Basically, researchers look at huge genomic databases and try to find collections of genes that when spotted together, may correlate with higher odds of some kind of trait in a person. Could be anything from gum disease to a certain type of cancer to brain fog, um, all sorts of traits. Um, and so the the nuance with polygenic risk score selection is one, this is a new science. It is very easy for one group of researchers to come up with a polygenic risk score selected with height uh, or associated with height that might indicate that someone with a certain genome is going to be taller than average, and that a different set of researchers may use that same, you know, see that same person in their genome and say, ah, oh, but you have this different polygenic risk score that suggests you're going to be shorter than average. And in fact, I am one of those people. Um, we, we've also fully genomically sequenced ourselves through nebula genomics, and I have a polygenic risk score saying I'm going to be taller, and I have one saying I'm going to be shorter. So that is all to say that this is very imperfect science, that you know, parents who are doing this kind of selection, especially if they're looking at individual risk scores when making choices, have to acknowledge that this is new. You know, this is the Wild West and we don't have a whole lot of information. But we, Malcolm and I are of the mind that we're going to do everything that we can. We're going to take what we have to work with and try to make as informed a decision as possible. It's pretty much harmless, right? Because in, before polygenic risk score selection, you were just randomly choosing a viable embryo. 
now you're just randomly choosing a viable embryo using some additional possibly useful information. So long story short, what we did was we had our embryos sequenced by genomic prediction, which gives parents an overall score of health, but only gives polygenic risk scores associated with a very small set of things, mostly cancer, schizophrenia is on the the list as well. Um, So because we wanted a little more information than that, we took raw data exports from our genomic prediction um, account or file or whatever. We uploaded them to a different um, genomic sequencing website, one that was really meant more for like adults and doctors to help them work with various risks that they have. Like, oh, your risk for gum disease is higher. Maybe you should be more careful about going to the dentist. Um, So we basically created a doctor's office profile, uploaded our, our embryo data to that, and then looked at our quote unquote patients at many more risk scores. And then we took the risk scores that we cared most about, which had in our case to do with mental performance. We created a sort of weighted average based on those risk scores. And that's how we made our ultimate embryo selection. Obviously, it's it's an imperfect process, but why why do we care about mental performance instead of all the other physical performance-related things that are on the website that we went to with a lot more data is because, all right, with cancer, you have early detection. With a lot of other conditions, you can manage them easily. But as far as we see it, when it comes to mental performance, things like brain fog and ability to deal with stress, chronic depression, uh, anxiety, these are things for which... I mean, there doesn't seem to be any really clear cure. And also those seem to be more pervasive problems in society now than ever. Um, So we would much rather have our children screen early for cancers for which they're at higher risk, but then have lower overall odds of having some kind of mental health problem that we can't deal with. To be clear, we do screen for cancers in the embryos we choose. We do screen for health more generally. She's just talking about the things we prioritize. But what I wanted to take here uh, really quickly as an aside, so she was talking about, yeah, you know, the technology isn't perfect yet, but, okay, yeah, so the technology isn't perfect yet, but it does still give us information. It does still give us like really like the science on this is pretty robust and that you are getting real information. It's just not perfect information and the science will advance. But what is really interesting about polygenic risk scores for me, is it something that we as a species are going to eventually have to use? The reason why we're going to have to eventually use polygenic risk scores is like all species, historically a huge number of humans died off. Um, like 50% of babies, like more than that of adults, you know, did not reach breeding age, did not have kids. And that is what sort of kept us genetically healthy. That is what presented genetic drift in directions like getting lots of cancer when you're young or other sorts of mental issues. Um, and we no longer have those selection events anymore. Thank God most kids live now. Most humans, regardless of their condition, can live until the age where they can have kids. And this is a great, amazing thing. But eventually we're going to, if, if we don't do anything about it, you know, all humans are going to start developing tons of cancers when they're like 10. You know, so we need to eventually get this technology good and begin to reapply that evolutionary pressure that previously would have happened to living human beings, but do it at the stage of the embryo or potentially even before that stage if we want to prevent sort of dysgenic uh, uh, sort of vortexes from happening within our species. Uh, okay, so there's there there's a lot there. There's a lot of issues there. I know people have 
there's a lot of ethical issues that people raise with this sort of stuff. I am interested uh, just in terms of like where the technology is at now, um, because, for example, I know there was a big study uh, recently that came out that looked that tried to develop these sorts of uh, scores for uh, they were looking at educational attainment and they had three million samples from people that they were looking for. And they were able from those samples by identifying gene variants to account for uh, it's like 16, 17% of the variation, right? So that's not nothing, but that's still that's still pretty small uh, for some of these other uh, characteristics is probably even smaller because they, they have a, a smaller yeah. sample. On the other hand, I do talk to people who say, well, that's just the public stuff. If you go, if you uh, use these private methods, you can do better or whatever. What I mean, I don't know if you if you had a sense of like what kind of impact you you think that you can get out of these technologies right now with some of these traits. Um, well, there was another study that came out that was really interesting that showed um, that by looking at uh, genetics, they had a better prediction of educational attainment than SAT scores could provide. Um, yeah. And that's shocking. You know, I, I understand it's not perfect, but no measure is perfect in our society. And yet we sort how we hire with like all sorts of things by measures. Like it, it's it's just because something isn't perfect, just because and this is the way I look at it. You know, people are like, don't use this technology to prevent your kids from getting cancer or getting depression. You know, it's unethical and it's particularly unethical because it doesn't work perfectly. And to me, that sort of is like a Jehovah's Witness saying, you know, how dare you give this child a blood transfusion? Blood transfusions don't even save children every time. Like, just because something doesn't work every time, just because the technology isn't perfect yet, doesn't mean you shouldn't do everything you can to protect your kids. Uh, uh, Simone, did you have something to add on that? Or No, I, I very much agree with him. Um, but we also very much understand and respect other people's views. I mean, some people, per their definition of when life begins, really can't do IVF unless they are pretty sure they are going to be able to transfer every single embryo they create. And, right. you know, we understand and respect that. It's a nuanced issue that we internally debate all the time as well. That does seem like a significant ethical obstacle. And even just, uh, you know, uh, from my thinking, uh, right now, I don't know what percentage of uh, of births are done via IVF, but it's fairly I think small. It's 14. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a fairly small percentage. You might imagine that increasing somewhat, but some like forty forty five percent of uh, of like pregnancies are unplanned. Obviously, you can't do those versus IVF. So I do wonder to, to what to what extent. You know, if you're trying to think big or think long term, are these technologies kind of limited if you have to do them via, via IVF, uh, you know, both because of moral but also practical considerations? Yeah, I mean, I think what you're looking at is um, a, a split. So people, they're often like, oh, if this technology is 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 made, you know, legalized and, 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 and inexpensive and everyone has access to it. You know, what are we going to select against? What are we going to lose as a species? And it's like, get real here, people. The, the, the people who are having lots of kids, the cultures that are having lots of kids right now, the vast majority of them are highly technophobic. Even if this technology was inexpensive and usable by a mass audience, um, it, it would be 
uh, only adopted by a small minority of parents. Moreover, you know, you talk about IVF. IVF is hard and painful right now. As the technology develops further, as IVG develops, which is one of the areas where we're really interested in in helping people working in this space, we'll be able to do this without the pain. We'll be able to have, you know, a gay couple have kids that are 100% genetically theirs and that had been polygenically screened, you know, all sorts of cool stuff like that. But to get to that point in the technology, people need to be using the technology today. Like that's how technology advances is it has a customer base that it's the first people to use it and then it gets better. What What is IVG? I'm not familiar with that. It's in vitro gametogenesis. So it is the process of using um, non-egg or sperm material necessarily. Um, so you could use cells from somewhere else on someone's body to create eggs and sperm that you can then fertilize and turn into a person. So theoretically you could use, you know, to to wives, to husbands, um, instead of having to rely on like one wife's egg and then donor sperm if if a lesbian couple wanted to have children. Okay. So this is, I guess, uh, similar to the process that they could use for cloning, but with different genetic material. Is that kind of... It's a very different process, um, but it... It is very exciting technology. And another implication of it is that with in vitro gametogenesis, you don't have to go through the painful process of IVF. You don't have to use, you know, one egg is able to make one person. Um, you can create theoretically. And of course, this is terrifying to people who believe life begins at, you know, a fertilized embryo, but you can create yeah. thousands of embryos and choose one with the very best possible genetic roll of the dice of whoever it is that contributed to its creation. Um, so for many people, that's that's extremely exciting. But what we would say when it comes to like, oh, this technology, one, is it too expensive? What is it, you know, too much of a hassle, unplanned pregnancies, et cetera. What we really care about through our pronatalist advocacy efforts through pronatalist.org is that those who otherwise won't have kids, can't have kids, can't afford to have kids, have families if they want them. We don't want people who don't want kids to have kids. We don't need people who are already having kids to have kids because they've got it figured out. What we really care about is those people who, and so many reach out to us, really want to have a family, but for whatever reason can't. And those common reasons are, hey, I have this weird genetic condition that I just can't pass on. Um, or well, I'm, I'm gay and I can't, you know, afford this or that, um, or I struggle with fertility. All of these things are pretty decent bottlenecks, especially among groups that we would like to see represented culturally in the future. And that's where we see it as having the most potential. We're certainly not saying this is for everyone. And interestingly, um, you know, speaking of this, if you look at our organization and our biggest project right now, which is the Collins Institute, is people are like, oh, you know, you're really interested in getting birth rates up and everything like that. You must be primarily focused on fertility research. And it's like, no, actually, like our core area of spending and work right now is on education. Because that's one of the biggest bottlenecks once you have kids is that right Mm. now, I can't realistically go to a middle class person and say, if you have seven kids, that those kids will get to live within the same class position as you live in. 
right? Because right now our society, uh, the university system has sort of a monopoly on class credentialing. And it's uh, insane and obscene. And we're trying to create new educational paradigms that are both less expensive than the existing ones and more meritocratic than the existing ones, um, which can, in the future, allow us to realistically go to, you know, your normal middle class person and say, if you have seven kids, every one of those kids will be able to get the quality of education they would at Harvard and the connections they would have gotten there. Okay. okay. Well, that's, yeah, that is interesting. Uh, so, I mean, how, how do you, I know you guys do a school for the gifted or something like that. How, do, how uh, this is a personal interest to me. Uh, how, how do we, how do we solve this problem? Yeah, so I, I think we need to be clear when we say gifted, what we mean is one, it's a self-image thing for the kids, right? You know, going to a school for the gifted. We do not mean gifted in IQ. We mean gifted in I will. Even in terms of how we do our admissions, it is about being gifted in terms of I will. Their ambition is what we're measuring. And I can go over how we do that. But um, the way the system itself works is also very reflective of that. Essentially, what we've done is we've taken the entire educational system for middle school and high school, or it's what we're doing now, and we divided it into basically a skill tree or a tech tree, like you would see in a video game, like a series of interconnected nodes. And you complete one node and it unlocks the nodes above it. Each node, when you click on it as a student, you know, it's right your day. You're like, okay, I want to study this today. Okay, I clicked on the long division node. You then can book the test on the subject whenever you want. And then below that is a ordered listing of all of the sources available online where you could learn that information from YouTube to TikToks to Khan Academy to Wikipedia. And after you complete your test on that subject, you then rank the sources that were most useful to you. And that rank is weighted by how well you did on that test. And so you can also upload your own notes to this master list and you can create your own videos and learning material. And if they get uploaded, you as a student get remuneration from the school. So the idea is that you have this constantly iterating and and perfecting list of the best places to learn things. To prevent students from just focusing on one branch of the tree, what we do is they have to earn a certain number of credits a week, and the number of credits they get is a function of their score when they complete the test on these individual nodes multiplied by um, how far behind they were in that branch of the tree. So they earn more points the further behind they are and less points the further ahead they are, which fixes the intrinsic-extrinsic motivation problem, which is the problem where if somebody loves doing something and you pay them to do it or you reward them for doing it, they start liking it less. Um, so that's how we solve that. The way we get around the college system is we've been able to build out a network um, because Simone, for a while, was the managing director of Dialogue, which was this secret society funded by Peter Thiel, and then Schmidt Futures hired us to build out like a secret society thing that they're building called Act Two. We have this huge Rolodex of people in positions of power, and what we're trying to do is sort of um, create what we call democratized nepotism, which means that when somebody, when any kid gets really far in one of the branches of the tree, they get the opportunity to pitch projects to these high level people within that domain and work with them and sort of move into these high level positions around the university system in a way that, that makes it much broader. You know, it's actually just looking at their skill in this area instead of, um, 
their uh, 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 like, were they able to complete everything perfectly? Uh, which which uh, opens high level achievement to a much broader pool of people. The way that we prevent bias from creeping up in our system, as it did within the old school system, is we've partnered with Metaculous, um, which is a forecasting company, and uh, whenever something is sort of uh, socially, um, uh, uh, you know, potentially adjacent to the political realm, about a quarter of the questions that kids have to ask on those multiple choice tests are actually prediction market questions, which allows us to then correlate the other questions to the students' outcomes on the prediction market questions. To, to word this differently, if we were to ever find out that the students who are getting good grades aren't also the students who are able to predict future events with current information, then we know we're testing for ideological alignment instead of true understanding of the subject. But what's really cool is using this system and other types of authentic assessment. So like in English, we can test the student's ability to write by how many five-star reviews their fan fiction gets, then go back and correlate how much the questions related to a student's actual ability to perform in real-world environments, then use something like GPT-3 to constantly generate new questions. So you have a system that is constantly generating new questions and constantly improving those questions where improvement is defined as those questions are good measures of a student's ability to perform in real-world environments. Okay. Well, uh, so that's <laughs> we've covered a lot of ground. Um, uh, I well, thank you, thank you both. Um, if you have any parting thoughts uh, before we end, uh, uh, Simone, uh, go for, first with you. Uh, yeah. If anyone's listening to this and they're interested in demographic collapse, prenatalism, or just like ways to have a family, even if you don't have a normal family format. We love talking about these things and nerding out. You can reach out to us through ponydalist.org. Okay. Also, yeah. Yeah. Got the books. Be sure to check those out. Although I'd really love if people checked out our next books, which are coming out in January um, and on, on crafting new religious traditions and how you can fix this issue uh, within sort of a family level. Um, And, uh, you know, follow us on Twitter, Simone H. Collins. Um, and we would love to engage with you guys. And Oh, and on the sources. If you guys have any questions on the sources, we have a big sources doc we can share with you that goes over where we got any statistic we mentioned here. Okay. All right. So uh, my guests today, guests today have been uh, Malcolm and Simone Collins. Thank you very much for joining us. And for everyone listening, uh, if you like the show or interested, please do review us on all the different apps and rate us. Uh, I don't ask you to do that very often, but this is like the once a year thing. I'm going to do that. So uh, with that, so long.